First 10 chapters of Joshua talk about God's covenantal promise to give Israel the land and their conquering of that land. And the next portion, the middle portion of Joshua is a picture of heaven. A picture that rarely do we ever read together because it's just the allotment of land to the tribes of Israel. But you ever wonder what it's going to be like one day when you stand before your Savior in heaven and he tells you, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. You want to know what heaven's like, you read the middle portion of Joshua. And you read it with the view of hearing God's pronouncement of your inheritance and the joy that Israel must have felt as they heard the inheritance that would be theirs. And as you come to the very end of Joshua, Joshua summons his people three times. And he shows them the importance of covenant unity. He shows them the importance of covenant fidelity. And he shows them the importance of covenant renewal. Last week we saw covenant unity and the importance of listening, confronting each other, being unified together in the covenant. And this week we look at covenant fidelity. But before I read the scriptures, I want to remind you of one verse that summarizes all the book of Joshua. In Joshua 21, 43 through 45, it says this. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them. For the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises, not just promises, the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Verse 43 tells you about the first 10 chapters. Go into that land that I swore to give you and take it. Verse 44 tells you about the second half of the book. And the Lord gave them rest on every side. And verse 45 of chapter 21 summarizes the entirety of the book of Joshua. Listen, I'm doing this because some of you haven't been with us in worship. It's important to know where, we're, where we are in Joshua before you hear, particularly from Joshua 23. Verse 45 says, Not one promise of all the Lord's good promises had failed. All came to pass. That's what the book of Joshua is about. Now, if you're willing and able, let's stand together and let's read Joshua chapter 23. As we think about covenant fidelity together. This is the word of the Lord. A long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, Joshua summoned all of Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years. And you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I have allotted to you an inheritance for your tribes, those nations that remain along with all the nations that I have already cut off. From the Jordan to the great sea in the west, the Lord your God will push them back before you and will drive them out from your sight. And you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. Therefore, be very strong to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, 
turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them. But you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. But they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. And now I'm about to go the way of all the earth. And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. But just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you, if you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given to you. Friends, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Thanks be to God. You may be seated, please. It's a thick text. It's a beautiful text. And so let's ask Jesus to help us as we think about it together. Father, would you take your word upon which all creeds of earth stand your word, which is a final authority for us. It's God-breathed. It's useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. And would you do that? Would you teach us? Would you rebuke us? Would you train us in righteousness? And would you show us through this text the beauty of your Savior who loves us? And would you help us, some of us who have a hard time reading the Old Testament, to see how it sings of Jesus? Thank you, Jesus, that you're with us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Lauren and I had an anniversary not long ago, and we went down to the Arbuckle Wilderness in Oklahoma. And there's a woman who owns a bed and breakfast there. Her name is Carol Van Horn, and she is a fantastic owner of a bed and breakfast because she helps you think about which room you really want to reserve for an anniversary night. So I reserved a room and she let me know very quickly, well, you know, if you, if you love your wife, I guess it's an okay room. <laughs> but if you really want a room, then you get this room, which happens to be more money, by the way, but oh, the view. <laughs> and of course, yes, a good husband that I am and a sucker, I took the room and I'm glad I did because it overlooked the valley of the Arbuckle Wilderness, and it was beautiful. We saw the deer come up in the morning, eat the corn. We saw all kinds of wildlife in the wilderness that was below us. It was fantastic. There are a few passages in Scripture 
that are for us, not rooms with a view, but they give us wisdom with a view. Chapter 23 happens almost 20 years after chapter 22 in Joshua. So Joshua is about 90 years old when you read chapter 23. He's an old, old man. And he looks over the people of Israel and he says, I want to give you some wisdom before I die. I'm about to go the way of all the earth, a euphemism for his imminent death. And I want to remind you of something. I want to give you a principle, Israel, and I want you never to forget it. Here's the principle. That Yahweh is faithful in his judgment as well as in his grace. That Yahweh is faithful to his promise in his judgment as well as in his grace. That's the principle of the entirety of chapter 23. Not one of the promises that God had given to Israel, not one of them had failed. Not one. And in a world where there are so many competing claims for truth, Joshua says to them, the Lord is faithful in his judgment and in his grace. And if you're going to experience the Lord's grace and the goodness in your life and in the life of your progeny, the next generation after you, then there's three things that I want you to know, three responsibilities, Israel, that you have. The first responsibility that Joshua tells Israel that you need to have if you're going to experience God's grace is not just for your generation, but you must teach the word of the Lord to the next generation. You are responsible, generation, the one who took possession of the land, of teaching the next generation that all of God's promises are good and that not one of them has failed. You are the one, this generation, who is to teach the next generation that God is faithful to you. You are the one who is to tell your children all that the Lord your God has done for you. Your responsibility, Trinity, this generation of a church, listen, we're not, we aren't going to be here in 50 years, most of us. It is your responsibility and it is mine to plant a church that reminds people not how sticky the church could be, not how we had things put together. That's not even the point. To teach people that not one of Jesus' promises to his people fails. If that's the legacy we leave, that's a legacy worth leaving. Everything else can burn up. Not one of Jesus' promises fail. And this is important. Why? It's important because in the history of the church, especially the 20th century, there was a, a transmission of information that happened. And the source of where spiritual knowledge was transmitted stopped being the home and started becoming the church. There's all a whole bunch of historical reasons why this happened, which I don't have time to get into. But in the 20th century, suffice it to say that many of us were raised learning the doctrines of God's covenant promises, not in the church. I'm sorry, not in our families where they ought to have been taught, but exclusively in the church. Many of us, if we're not careful, this generation will have a tendency to train our children up in the way they should go by saying, go see Pastor Blake and he can answer your questions. And those questions I'm glad to try to answer, though I don't promise you I have every answer. It is the family who is to be the chief discipler of our children. 
Now, don't freak out. I'm not saying we should all have jumpers and wear denim. But I am saying that we ought to be a church where the family takes serious the discipleship of their kids. You'll notice in the call to, uh, or the reflection this morning was from Psalm 78. I just want to read this to you so that you hear it again. Yahweh's deeds, his fidelity, his fidelity to his people. There is no guarantee if you tell the next generation all that he has done for you, no guarantee that they will indeed follow the one true God, but there is almost certainly a guarantee that they won't if you don't. So Psalm 78 says, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, not dark as in evil, dark as in mysterious. Things that have been heard and known that our fathers have told us, we will not hide them from our children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might, the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded to our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, that the children yet unborn and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. If you're a careful reader when you read Joshua 23, you're looking in the text going, I, I don't know where he gets this whole thing about the next generation. It's a good question. You should be asking that question. I have withheld telling you who the recipients of the book of Joshua are until this point in the series. Because who is reading the book of Joshua for the first time? The substantial portion of Joshua, without some edits perhaps that were done after the exile, was finished within 20 years of Joshua's life. I can show you commentator after commentator who agrees that that's true. And what was the generation right after Joshua? They were a generation who were faithful to the Lord. They were faithful to the Lord. But then the generation after that, that is the grandchildren of the people who Joshua is speaking to you right now. What does it say in Judges? It says at the end of Judges, what? What is the famous phrase of the book of Judges? That everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And in Judges 2.10, it says there was a generation that rose up after Joshua who was faithful, but then the following generation, they forgot the commands and the promises of God. And the people during the time of the judges who were doing whatever is right in their own eyes, this is the sermon that they are given to read the book of Joshua and to reflect back on the whole of God's covenant promises by giving them the land, by showing them the truth of God's covenant faithfulness to his people. Joshua was written for the generation of the judges and for you. Because many of you too, parents, are doing what is right in your own eyes. And the truth is, by our own experience, many people who are in the evangelical church today are in the church for the sake of their children. 
But let me push on that just a little bit. They're in the church for the sake of their children, not for biblical reasons, not for gospel-centered reasons. They're in the church for the sake of their children because of their own idolatries. And their idolatries are this. I do not want children to grow up and be pregnant before they're married. I do not want children to grow up and be on drugs. I do not want children to grow up and be socially awkward people. And in this context of the South, it is socially acceptable to be part of a church. And so there's a huge pressure socially for parents to get their children into church. But is that the reason why you come? No. I pray it's not. Those things are byproducts and fruits, and they're great. But the primary reason why the church exists is so that parents can tell the next generation of the wonderful truths and promises of God. And parents, do you know how you best tell your children about the truths and promises of God? You tell them about your own brokenness. And you tell them about God's faithfulness in your life. And you do not hide your brokenness from them. Now, I'm not telling you to be exhibitionistic about your sin. There's a place and time to reveal yourself to your children in ways as they get older. But what I'm telling you to do is practice repentance in your home before your kids. There is a gap in the way we educate our children in the church. It's called a sanctification gap that many authors have written about. One named Richard Loveless has spoken a lot about. We fall into traps in this area in the church where we talk about the gospel in two very dangerous ways. The first way we talk about the gospel in a way that's dangerous is we say that the gospel is about getting in. Just get in. The truth is that you and I are sinners and that we need Jesus Christ and that there's no hope for us outside of the work of Jesus, his finished work for us. Do you believe that? And when you believe that, God forgives you of your sins and he covers you with his righteousness. It's the beauty of justification by faith. Now get in. Become part of the church. And then we stop talking about the application of the gospel. We get them in. And throughout the revivals of the first and second great awakening, all the way up until the 20th century, the church is shot through with this perspective of just get them in. That's what matters. We've moved from judging the spiritual quality of people's life and providing good counseling for families, all of which, my family included, needs counseling because it's broken and hard to be a parent these days. My own sin gets in the way every single minute. And we've started judging the church based upon metrics that you can judge and that you can count. How much money they give, how many people are in the pews, how many church plants they have. It's the get-in mentality. There's also another way that's equally as dangerous. Conservatives tend to view it as the get-in mentality. Just come in, let's build a bigger church. Let's become our own little kingdom. Generally speaking, liberals are on the other side where they say it's get somewhere. Not get in, let's get somewhere. We don't want to talk about the exclusivity of Jesus. Let's just get somewhere. Let's, prog let's progress in our spiritual life. And some of you fall into this trap too. You say, well, let's get somewhere. Like, I don't see any growth in my life. I need to listen to some more podcasts. I need to read the Bible. I must get through the Bible in a year, which is a fantastic thing that I hope all of you do. 
and you say, then that's going to be what delivers me from all of my troubles. This method or this mode of spiritual growth, I need to get somewhere. I need to do more. I need to be more. I need to wear myself out for Jesus. I need to get somewhere. As though you could actually earn God's favor by your good works. Your works are as filthy rags. Even your best good works are still before an infinitely holy God. Oh, it is his righteousness that he gives to you that makes you holy in his sight and empowers you, therefore, to do good things for his glory, but not to earn his, his favor. So if one method of sanctification that's very predominant in our area is get them in, another would be get them somewhere. The gospel is something altogether different. The gospel says not get them in, not get them somewhere, but get them someone. The only hope for spiritual growth in your life is if you get someone. And that someone is one who has suffered everything that you're suffering through right now. On the Garden of Gethsemane, do you not think Jesus knows the depths of depression? Do you not think that Jesus knows what it's like to be where you are? He is tempted as you are in every way, yet without sin. Do you think Jesus didn't know what it felt like to be rejected? He was rejected and despised by men. Do you think Jesus didn't know what it was like to struggle? Oh my gosh. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And yet, as he went through every single one of those things, you know what he was thinking about? I can't explain this, but it's true. He was thinking about you and me. And he gave his life for us so that we might believe in the covenant promises of God. Listen, those of you who live in the time of judges, where everybody does what's right in their own eyes, Joshua is the sermon for that entire generation, and it's the sermon for us too. Not one of God's covenant promises fail. They all came to pass. And they speak of them coming to pass in the past tense, don't they? You are all justified in Christ if you're a true believer in him. That is to say that when the Father looks at you, he sees the spotless, blameless righteousness of Jesus. And he covers you in his righteousness. He sees you pure and holy before him because of the work of Jesus. But there's still land for you to claim. And what we've contended all throughout Joshua is that the land that you need to claim is not land that's in the Middle East somewhere. It is land of your heart. It is the land of your soul. It is fighting against the enemies of sin and death and temptation and doubt that some of you have had since you were little children. And you may well have until you're old. And you, like Joshua, are giving your final farewell speech. John Owen has this great illustration. He's an old Puritan in the 17th century. And Owen said that when you become a Christian, many of us who became Christians, he said, it's like our souls are densely wooded forests, so thick you can't even walk through it. And when you become a Christian, it's like the Holy Spirit takes an ax and he swipes a lot of the underbrush away. And you can still see the forest, the, the tall trees, and you can still see bushes there. And it is therefore your job, even though the Lord has taken a lot of that underbrush away, it's your job to clear the land. 
and you go and you go pull those weeds. And so every Sunday when we have confession of sin, it's an opportunity for us again to stop and to pull the weeds. And he says, and then there are some of you who have had issues since you were little children, fear of failure, fear of rejection, struggles with your deep senses of identity. And they are like these giant redwood trees that stand in the forest, Owen says. And you are to take an ax, the ax of God's word, his promise, and you are to chop at that tree. And you are to go at it with everything you have and you are to sweat. But don't chop at it too long, Owen says, or you'll wear yourself out. Go pick some weeds. Go pull some bushes up. And then come back to those trees. And slowly but surely, by the grace of God, that tree one day in your life may fall. But if it doesn't, God is still faithful to you. You're to clear the land. That is our role as Christians. We are to continue to fight against sin, to become more and more like him. So that struggle becomes the mark of our spiritual growth, not victory necessarily. It is the struggle over sin. Like the elders tell people, just as they'll do after the service for people who interview to become members here, the elders say, listen, we do not care. Do not care if you struggle over sin. That is what we want here. Because if you struggle, you see it, and you're bringing it into the light. It is the sin that you do not bring into the light that is the most dangerous, that you cease to struggle over. And that is what happened to the grandchildren of those who heard these words of admonition from Joshua. And they began to do whatever was right in their own eyes. Your first responsibility, Trinity, moms and dads, big brothers and big sisters, is to help your children, help your little brother, help your little sister understand that God's promises are true. God is true, as Paul says, though every man be proved a liar. And you proclaim this good news as often as you can so that it shapes and forms their worldview. Is that yours? Your responsibility is to train the next generation. The second thing it says is your responsibility is to love the Lord your God. Notice twice in this passage he says, be very strong, which harkens back to what he said in Joshua chapter 1. Be strong and courageous, the verse that so many of us if you know any verse in Joshua, you know that verse. And then he says later on in chapter uh, 23, he says, I want you to be very careful, therefore, verse 11, that you love the Lord your God. For if you turn your back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. In other words, assimilating into the culture in such a way as you begin, there's nothing wrong with being friends with unbelievers. I hope that many of you are and have good friends that are unbelievers. That's not what this text is saying. This text is saying, do not adopt the gods of the world. Do not swear to them or bow down to them. Many of you will say, well, I'm content. I know the Lord provides everything that I need. And yet you struggle to be generous with your money. How do you know that you're content? You've never actually been content. Many of us will say, well, of course I trust in the Lord my God. Well, how do you know that? The Lord has taken you through a dark valley in order to show you how good he can be even when it seems like all of your resources have dried up. Some of you who are going through health issues, like Job was going through, it is a time for you to say, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, but blessed 
be the name of the Lord. I know it sounds hypocritical to hear it from a man who's healthy, but it nevertheless is true. You are to love the Lord your God with all of your heart. You're to see how much he cares for you. Not one of his promises have failed. Your responsibility, first of all, is to teach the next generation. It is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart. And then lastly, the third thing he tells us to do is you keep all the words that he has given you in the book of the law of Moses. Notice what he says in verse 6. Therefore, be very strong to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with those nations remaining among you or make mention of their names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them, but you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you've done to this day. It is our job to cling to him. You do not get in. You do not get somewhere, friends. We must get someone. It is only in the presence of someone who is infinitely loving, infinitely joyful, infinitely present in Jesus Christ, who is with you, who gives you the security that you need because you know what? It is not you who cling to Jesus. It is Jesus who's clinging to you, and he will never let you go. That's the good news. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus is clinging to you, and he's showing you his word, not because by reading this word or by memorizing this word or by feasting on this word, so to speak, that Jesus loves you more. He can't love you any more than he loves you. You do these things because, oh, you love him, and you want to know him. He's not angry with you. So many times when I say that to you in counseling, Jesus is not angry with you. It's like light bulbs go off. Oh, he's not. I thought he was. He's not angry with you. He loves you. And he welcomes you and he clings to you. He prayed, Lord, let them be one as you and I are one. Jesus invites you into the Holy Trinity in the New Jerusalem. He clings to you. There's a pastor friend of mine who has a son. I may have told you this story in a new members class at one point, but he's a pastor in the Chicago area, and he has a son, and his son began to drift from their family. And it was painful for the family to watch the son begin to drift from the moorings of the faith. And the son began to get on drugs and began to deal. And it was a mess. And the family didn't see the son anymore. But the father always told the son, if you ever need me, I'm going to be there for you. I love you. And the son went off and lived this life, stereotypical life, went off, never saw his parents again, didn't like his preacher dad and was rebelling against the family. And one night, the father got a phone call in the middle of the night. And it was the police department. And it said, Reverend, we have your son, and we need you to come pick him up. And this wasn't the only time that that had happened, and so he knew the drill. So he slipped out of bed, and he got into his car, and he drove to the precinct closest to his house. And he went in and he said, hi, I'm the Reverend, and I'm here to pick up my son. And they said, Sir, we don't have your son. So he drove to the next precinct over in Chicago, and he went into that precinct. He said, Sir, I'm here to pick up my son. And they said, Sir, we don't, 
we don't know your son. We don't have your son. He hasn't been here. So he drives out to the suburbs and goes to Wheaton and he says, hey, sir, I'm here to pick up my son. And they said, we don't have your son. And he drives over by Northwestern to the university area and he says, I'm here to pick up my son. And they said, sir, we don't have your son. And he's driven all over the city trying to find his son. He knew this phone call came from a police officer and he said, the only place he could have possibly gone if he got out was to this house where he hangs out. And so he drives to this house, this old dilapidated area of Chicago. And he walks into this house and he opens the door to find his son. And there are bodies sleeping everywhere. It smells awful. And there's all kinds of paraphernalia. And he walks across these kids, really. They're in their early 20s. And he can't find his son. And he goes into the back bedroom. And there on the bed, in the back bedroom, is his baby boy his son. And the pastor friend of mine says that every emotion came across him at that moment of anger and rage and everything within him, everything within him wanted to just kick the lights out of his son for what he had done to his family. The pastor walked over to the bed and he leaned down to his son and he kissed him on the cheek. And he got up and he walked out of that bedroom, walked across that room, out the door, into his car, drove home, went back to bed. And several months later, Thanksgiving, the son comes to Thanksgiving dinner. Then Christmas comes, the son comes to Christmas, comes to Christmas dinner. And after Christmas, between Christmas and New Year's, they're sitting out in the backyard and the dad says, so we've been seeing more of you. Why are you here? I thought you hated us. And the son said to the father, dad, don't, don't you know? Like, don't you know why I'm here? And he says, dude, I don't know anything about you anymore. I haven't a clue. And he said, it was that night when you came looking for me. That night when you came looking for me, dad, you did not get a call from the police. You got a call from my friends because they knew that you would never come looking for me because I'd made such a wreck of my life. And when your lights came down that street and you pulled up into that driveway, every person in that house hit the deck and we pretended to be asleep. And when you walked into that back bedroom, I knew that you were just going to kick the ever-living snot out of me. And you kissed me. And that was it. The kiss of my father, Dad, that's what brought me back to you. Because I knew that everything I had done for the, against this family, I knew that your word was true and that you loved me. It's a picture to us of the gospel, isn't it? That Jesus is not angry at you. That he comes looking for you and longs for you to tell you my promises to you are true. Every one of them are true. And when you expect him to kick you, he kisses you. And you know where you see his kiss? You see his kiss at the cross. When he died for you, thinking of you, so that you might stand in utter humility before an infinitely beautiful and holy God. And you might say that my only identity rests in the finished work of Jesus. 
And therefore, I can love the Lord my God with all my heart. Therefore, I can be empowered to love my neighbor when it's hard and I get nothing in return. Therefore, I can say that my chief identity is rooted in Jesus and who he's made me to be. And therefore, I do tell my kids about it. I help them understand the beautiful promises of the Lord. Oh, non-communion children, those of you who've been baptized but have not taken the Lord's Supper, please hear me. We long for you to believe the promises of God. And we believe those promises for you are true. And we want you to come to trust not in your own good effort, but to trust in the finished work of Jesus. We want that to happen today, soon. And it would have been perfect if Joshua would have stopped his speech right here. But he doesn't. He breaks all the norms of modern speech presentations. And he ends on a sour note. Because he says, just as faithful as God is to give you all the covenant promises and give you his grace, if you turn to the other gods, he will certainly cut you off from the land. God is faithful, Joshua says, in his judgment as well as in his grace. Jesus is the captain of the Lord's army in Joshua, in Joshua chapter 5 with the sword of two edges, the sword of judgment or the edge of grace. With which will he cut you and he will cut you? Does he cut you with the sword of judgment because you've rejected him or does he cut you with the sword of grace because you have no hope but in him? Oh, children, may this be what you hear your parents sing about. And may this be what we as a church proclaim, not to, only to this generation, but to the coming generations. That it is about the finished work of Jesus. Not how slick we are, not how many people we get in, not where we get people, but that we help them see someone. That is the legacy that Joshua wants his people to see. He is faithful in his judgment as well as in his grace. Do you know the slice of the sword of his grace, or do you know the cutting edge of his judgment? You must decide. It is yours to make. Hear the word of the Lord crying out to you. Hear Jesus' arms wrapping around you and saying, I love you and I am not angry with you. Hear him kissing you, not kicking, embracing you, not rejecting you, because that is the good news of the gospel. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you will help us to know that you are very serious about your covenant promises. And you are as serious about your covenant curses. May each of us in this room who have been brought into the covenant community of your people through baptism know the edge of your grace. And may we do all that we can to pray and plead for the next generation. Would you help those parents in this room, Lord, who have children who are running? Lord, help us to believe your promises are still true even when there is not the empirical evidence that we want in our children. Help those of us who have young children to proclaim God's word in a way that is clear for them that we don't just leave them to Trinity kids to disciple them, but we shepherd them at home. 
Help us as leaders of this church to resource our parents to do that well. And Lord, let the church and the family complement each other well in bringing up our children in the nurture and admonition of the good news of the gospel. And let the fruit of that flourish a thousand times. So prepare our hearts, we pray, to serve you with all of our heart, to trust you at your word, to love you, because not one word of all of your good promises has failed. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.